This Parsha podcast is dedicated in loving memory and Le'ilu Nishmas Yisrael Ezra Ben Peretz Halevi. May his soul be elevated in heaven. And as always, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Any questions, any comments, any feedback is greatly appreciated. This is the week that we will sync up with our brethren in Israel. Since the festival of Shavuos, we have been a little bit off schedule with our brethren in Israel. This week, we have a double parsha of Chutas and Balak in Israel. There is just the parsha of Balak. And from now on, we're going to be synchronized. We're going to be on the same schedule. And I wanted to share two interrelated ideas, one on Parsha's Chukas and one on Parsha's Balak, that I think contain a very powerful and timely message for us. So Parsha's Chukas fast-forwards 38 years, and the narrative of the Jews in the wilderness is really bookended at the very beginning, the first year and a half or so, and at the very end, and there's 38 years in the middle that we really don't know what happened to the Jewish people. And it's been now 40 years, essentially, since the Exodus, and there's going to be a series of conflicts, a series of wars with the enemies of the Jewish people on the east side of the Jordan River. So, our parsha, we talk about the encounter with Edom. Edom, of course, is the nation of Esav, the brother of Jacob, and Edom refuses passage to the Jewish people, and the nation is told, you may not engage in war with Edom, and they turn away and they try to find a different path towards the Promised Land. And the narrative of the encounters with the East Bank foes is interrupted. We have the death of Aaron, and then we have the encounter with Amalek in the southern part of Israel. Amalek is masquerading as standard Canaanites, Israel prays, and they succeed in defeating the Amalekite warriors. We get another break in the action. The Jewish people complain about the food and the water situation. God sends the fiery serpents, the nation repents, and Moshe erects the magical serpent staff. Anyone who's bitten by the serpent looks at the staff and is saved. And finally, the Parsha ends with the war with Sichon, king of the Amorites, the Jewish people is able to triumph over the fearsome enemy, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and finally the war with Od, king of Bashan, and the Parsha ends, the Jewish nation is on the plains of Moab, and of course Parsha's Balak is about the Moabites and their nefarious plans to hire Bilam to curse the Jewish people. So I noticed something really interesting. After being refused passage by Edom, the nation is forced to retrace its steps, and they actually backtrack seven stops. And when they tried entering again, it was from the south of Israel, what we call today Israel, south of Canaan, not the north in Mount Hor, where Aaron was buried. And there's a very interesting verse. This is chapter 21, verse 1. The Canaanite king, king of Arad, who dwelled in the south, he heard that Israel was coming by the route of the spies, and he engaged Israel in battle and took some of them captive. So it's interesting here that we're told that the Jewish people are heading into Israel from the south, and they're coming by the route of the spies. And Rashi gives us a fascinating insight. In Parsha Shlach, we read about Moshe sending 12 spies to reconnoiter the land, and they traveled via the south, 
they enter via the south. 38 years prior to this event, the first attempt at infiltrating the land was done by the spies, and it began in the south. And now, 38 years later, we're coming again. With the exception of Joshua, Caleb, and Moshe, all the adults that were alive at the time of the initial infiltration, the episode of the spies, they've all passed. Now we have a new generation, and the nation is once again mimicking the root of the spies. So this is, of course, an interesting anecdote, but why does the Torah find it necessary to tell us that the nation is retracing the root of the spies? Obviously, it's not by chance. It's not just a coincidence. It's coming to teach us a lesson. So I wanted to speculate. We know that the sin of the spies was a terrible sin of the nation. In fact, we read a few weeks ago, it condemned the nation to spend 40 years in the wilderness. The spies travel the land for 40 days. Each day results in a punishment of a year wandering in the wilderness before they can enter the land. And in fact, the nation has to pass on and only their children are going to enter the land. So the episode of the spies is a terrible blunder of the Jewish people. And now, maybe we can suggest, it's 38 years later, the nation is given a second chance. The Almighty says, okay, I want you to retrace the roots of your forefathers, of the spies. I want you to go in the same route from the south, and I'm going to give you a chance to fix, to rectify the sin of the spies. Go via the root of the spies. See what they saw. Encounter what they encounter. But unlike the spies, don't start shaking and quaking in your boots. Don't be fearful. Don't lose your faith. Rectify the wrong. That was my speculation. And this got me thinking. In the aftermath of the sin of the spies, God says, this is Numbers 14.22, that the Jewish people tested God ten times and did not hearken to God's voice. So there's ten times the Jewish people have sinned over the course of the preceding episodes, culminating with the sin of the spies. And the Talmud, in fact, the Book of Baruch, on page 15a, breaks down the ten sins of the nation. Twice they sinned at the sea, at the splitting of the sea. Twice with water, twice with manna, twice with slav, the quail, once with the golden calf, and once with the sin of the spies. And the Talmud elaborates. When they were surrounded by Pharaoh, they said, oh no, is there not enough graves in Egypt? You brought us here to die. After the miracle happened, the nation is able to walk through dry land amidst the water, and the nation questions whether the Egyptians, maybe they were also saved, maybe they also arrived on dry land on the other side. That's the two sins at the sea. Twice in the water, this is both times in Parshas Bashalach, both in chapter 17 of Exodus. Number one, they complained to Moshe there's no water. Number two, they fought with Moshe there's no water. Twice with manna. Once they were told to not leave over, they left over. Once they were told not to collect on Shabbos, and some people went to collect on Shabbos. Twice with the quail, once in Exodus 16 and one in Numbers 11, and of course, the sin of the golden calf and the sin of the spies. And here we find out that the nation is retracing the journey of the spies. Perhaps they're given an, an opportunity to rectify the sin of the spies. And if so, could it be, maybe, that all the ten sins of the wilderness, the Jewish people were also given the opportunity to rectify them? So I started to do a little bit of thinking. And it seems to me that in our Parsha, Parsha's Chukas, 
it actually contains, maybe, the rectification of all of these ten sins. So, for example, the sin of the golden calf. What was the core of that sin? So, of course, we spoke about it in the book of Exodus. The nation were so committed, were so wedded to Moshe as a leader that when he disappears, he's supposed to be back here after 40 days. It's been 40 days and he's not there and he's been tardy in coming back. We have to have a replacement. And eventually that resulted in the golden calf. So the core of the sin of the golden calf was a reliance on Moshe as a leader to the exclusion, so to speak, not really realizing that Moshe is the implement of God. If he's not around, we're in big time trouble. We have to quickly make a replacement. We have to have a successor. We have to find something to reorient ourselves, to ground ourselves. And this is Parsha, Parsha Chukas. Moshe is condemned to die. And in fact, next week we're going to read in Parsha's Pinchas that there's going to be an effort to appoint a successor, to appoint an heir to Moshe. And apparently, the nation takes it in stride. There is no redux of the golden calf, and Moshe is going to appoint a human successor, and there is not a scintilla of idolatry in this whole process. The nation is not acting rashly as they do with the golden calf. Again, they made a sin, they're given the second chance, they're told Moshe is going to die, and they're calm. They can rely on God now. They know that the Almighty will take care of them. Again, we see one of the ten sins, the ten big sins of the nation, 38 years later, they're given a chance to fix it. Another example, they are being pursued by Pharaoh at the splitting of the sea, and they cry out to Moshe, are there not enough graves in Egypt? You brought us here to die? And there's a very similar verbiage. If you look at the wars with Sichon and Og, it's very similar to what Pharaoh did. They gather the entire nation, and they go pursue the Jewish people. And we have no reference of the Jewish people saying, oh no, we're going to die, we're going to lose this war, we should have died in Egypt. None of that. Again, a sin, one of the ten sins that the Jewish people were guilty of, they're given the same situation 30 years later, and they stand the test this time. Maybe this is a good challenge for the audience. How many of the nation's ten sins can you find their rectification in this parsha? But I think this is part of a larger idea. A sin, of course, creates a blemish. And when the nation sins, there's a national blemish. And here, apparently, we're being told that the Almighty is going to give ample opportunity to rectify it. And this, of course, applies on a national level. But I think we could say quite safely that this applies on an individual level too. You make mistakes, you trip up, you have blunders you're going to be given an opportunity to fix it. If you are alive, it means that there is still potential for you to fulfill your mission. If it's helpless, if it's hopeless, if there's no chance of fixing it, well, then you wouldn't be here. And therefore, by definition, if you are alive, you could still achieve your mission. And if you have made mistakes, you're going to be given a chance to fix it, to rectify it. Parshas Balak, how does it begin? It begins with Balak, the king of Moab. He discovers what God, what the Jewish people have done to the Amorites, and he freaks out. He's terrified. He thinks he's going to lose, and he resorts to unconventional 
warfare. That's the beginning of the parsha. And of course, he hires Bilam. It's a total disaster. And at the end of the parsha, Bilam gives Balak an idea to hire, to deploy the daughters of Moab to cause the Jewish people to sin. If the Jewish people sin and they sin with the daughters of Moab, maybe they'll do idolatry and maybe the Almighty will stop protecting them. And there is a total disaster in the parsha. People are sinning with the daughters of Moab. Many of them have to be executed as a result. And then the leader of the tribe of Shimon, he has a very public episode of licentiousness where he takes a princess of the Midianites and he copulates with her in a very public manner and that kickstarts a disaster that only ends with Pinchas's zealotry. I think there's a maybe a deep connection with these stories that relate to the idea that we've talked about in Parshas Chukas, that we're all given a chance to fix the misdeeds of our past. The Parsha begins, Vayar Balak ben Tzipor et kol Yisrael Balak, the king of Moab, the son of Tipor, he saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And of course, he devises the plot to try to destroy his enemies. There's a very similar verse in Exodus 18.1. This is also talking about the aftermath of one of Israel's triumphs, where one of the leaders of the other nations, the Gentile nations, discovers what the Jewish people have done, but it's very, very different. And that reads that Yisro, Jethro, the priest of Midian, the father of Moshe, he heard all that God had done to Moshe and to Israel. He heard about the Exodus. And of course, what does he do? He runs to go join the Jewish people. So it's a really interesting contrast here. Our sages tell us that Balak, the king of Moab, and Yisro, Jethro, were actually relatives. And both of them encounter the tremendous power of the Jewish people, the dominance of the Jewish people, and they have opposite reactions. One is inspired to join the Jewish people, and one is inspired to fight. What's the difference? So perhaps the difference is how they processed this information. Balak saw what Israel did, and he rebelled. Yisro heard what Israel did, and he repented. And he went to join the Jewish people. And there's a dynamic, a motif found all over Jewish literature and philosophy that when you encounter something with vision, that's physical, that's limited. Whereas when you hear something, when it's audio, it's spiritual and it's unlimited. So for example, one of the definitions of the spiritual world, of God of the soul, is that it sees but is unseen. If we use our vision to try to connect to God, we're not going to do it. In fact, our eyes, our field of vision, is engineered to make us not see God. To connect with God, we have to hear. We have to listen. We have to listen to our elders. We have to listen to tradition. We have to listen to our hearts. We have to listen to our messages. In fact, when we make the declaration of our faith, the Shema, we cover our eyes because we're acknowledging that our relationship with God is not on the vision level. It's Shema, listen, hear, O Israel, and then you connect to God. 
Similar idea. Laban is described as a seer. He follows his vision. His sister, Rebecca, she is described as a listener. And these, of course, are siblings. How can two siblings take such divergent paths in life? One is the major of Israel, Rebecca, and one is one of the greatest villains in Jewish history, Laban. The answer is, is that one was a listener and one was a seer. Yisro heard what happened to Israel. He listened to the message. He absorbed its implications. He changes life. He discovers that God has all the power and he's doing miracles for the Jewish people. Well, what does that mean for him? When you listen to that message, you change your life. He was an idolater, but he joined the nation and he became a great believer and a great hero. Balak encountered the same information, but he saw the phenomenon. He didn't listen to its messages. And instead of this inspiring him to change his life for the better, it caused him to get further entrenched in his evil ways. So what's the difference between seeing and hearing? So like we mentioned earlier, seeing is physical, and your eyes are engineered to make you view only what you can see as being real, whereas when you hear something, it's more spiritual. That's one idea. I had another idea. I'm actually coming to you right now from Canada. And as I mentioned a few weeks ago, we were trying to get to Canada. And thank God we got through the border. No problem. I told my kids, we were driving from New York for my parents to Buffalo to the border crossing. I told my kids, if the Almighty wants us to get in, we'll get in no problem. And if not, we're not going to get in. And we had made plans. You know, this is a six-hour drive from my parents' home to the border. What if they don't allow us in? Well, then we'll try to find a hotel in Buffalo and try the next day maybe. But I said quite clearly, if the Almighty wants us in, we're in. If not, then we're not in. In fact, I made a pledge. If we get through, I'm going to get some charity. But anyhow, we get to the border. And we are grilled by the border guard less than we usually are. And he lets us in right away, no questions asked. He doesn't even ask to see any Canadian documentation because my wife is a Canadian citizen and that we thought would help us get in. He doesn't even ask, takes American passports, you're free to go, make sure you quarantine for 14 days, takes our address, takes our phone number, and that's it. So we're in Canada and you may not be aware of this, the majority of our audience is actually American, but Canada celebrates her independence on July 1st, not July 4th, July 1st. So that was this week. And we spend the summer here on one of the lakes, Lake Lake Simcoe. My in-laws have a small cottage on the lake. And because it's a huge lake, one of the biggest lakes in North America, and everyone's Canadian here, so on the Independence Day, everyone's setting off fireworks. So we're sitting last night on July 1st, and we look around all the way across the lake, across the bay, and people are shooting up fireworks, and it's really beautiful. But I noticed something really interesting. When you have a salvo of fireworks and the fireworks end, you could still hear like the the audio version of it like a second later. So you see the, the fireworks and you hear the noise and then the last fireworks and you wait a second and you hear the last sound of the fireworks. And of course, we know the reason for this because audio travels pretty fast, around 600 miles per hour. But... Light, seeing something, is almost instantaneous. I think the the number is 186,000 miles per second. 
So audio is traveling very fast, 600 miles an hour, but vision is almost instant. 186,000 miles, what's that, like seven times around the earth in a second. So seeing is almost instant, but hearing is delayed. What does it mean that seeing something is physical? Hearing something is spiritual. What does it mean that Yisro heard, but Balak saw? Maybe what this means is, is that there's two ways to process information. Maybe even disturbing information. Maybe an inf- information that could potentially force you to change your life path. Yisro, he's an idolater. He's part of the Midianites. And he encounters information that throws his life into disarray, into chaos. God is really with the Jewish people and he's doing miracles for them. How do you process that? The initial instantaneous reaction may be fury, may be anger, may be hatred, may be an impulse, a desire for revenge. That's the knee-jerk instinct. What happens if you see it and you behave upon the instant reaction of your vision, you act immediately, you're not going to process the message correctly. And therefore, Balak, he saw what happened, and instantly he acted upon it. He didn't allow the message to be imparted within him, to be absorbed, and therefore he didn't change his life. In fact, he deepened his evilness. Yisrael encountered the same disturbing information, but to him, because he heard it, he allowed it to settle within him. He says, okay, I finally found truth. I'm going to pursue it. Maybe we can speculate the following idea. When someone does a sin, or when someone's living a sinful way, or a, a path of life that's not in accordance with what God wants for them, the Almighty is going to help them. The Almighty is going to allow them to change their path. He's going to send messages to them. He's going to force them to retrace the steps of the spies. He's going to force them to have an opportunity to have a second chance. However, it's up to the person whether or not they're going to process this message correctly. If you think about it, going back to Genesis, we had two brothers in Genesis, Shimon and Levi, two sons of Jacob, and they behave in a way that's unprecedented. Of course, we know the story. Dina, their sister, is abducted, and they have a ruse, and they tell the people of Shechem, okay, you can marry her, but you have to circumcise. And then when they're all ill, they come and they slaughter the whole city. What characteristics are they displaying? So first of all, they're not colluding with anyone else. They're not discussing the matter with Jacob. They're not discussing the matter with the other brothers. They're acting as mavericks. They're acting independently. They are defiant, almost recalcitrant of the authorities. And they're also fearless. And Jacob on his deathbed, he roundly rebukes them. They, again, are behaving in an improper way, and they're given a message, fix it. Both of them are given the same message. But what happens? Levi, of course, becomes the tribe that has all the leaders, the priests, the Kohanim, the Levites, Moshe, Aaron, they all come from the tribe of Levi. Apparently, Jacob's rebuke, 
Jacob's admonishment worked. And in fact, if you study the story of Levi, thenceforward, you see that they still have the same characteristics of defiance, of being a maverick, of being fearless, but this time it's for the good. In Egypt, Pharaoh says, work. Levi says, no, I'm not working. Again, he's defiant, he's recalcitrant, he's a maverick, he's going his own way, but this time it's to not capitulate to Pharaoh. In the wilderness, over the course of 40 years, we're told there was a concern if you circumcise your kid, the kids will die. It's dangerous. We don't have the right medical facilities. Thomas says there isn't uh, the, the northern wind. It's dangerous. There's only one tribe that displays fearlessness in faith. That's the tribe of Levi. They circumcise all their children, even in the wilderness. Again, defiance, fearlessness, being independent, going on your own, but for holiness. What do we read in the Suits Parsha? The head of the tribe of Shimon begins to contest Moshe's leadership and he grabs the Midianite woman and says, is this woman permitted or is she prohibited? And Moshe says she is prohibited. And then they respond defiantly, recalcitrantly, fearlessly to Moshe and they say to him, well, what about your wife? Your wife is also a Midianite woman, and who permitted her to you? And then, in front of all, this head of the tribe begins to copulate with this Midianite princess. So we see the same characteristics. Defiance, fearlessness, disobedience to authority, but instead of disobeying Pharaoh, they're disobeying Moshe. We see over here an example. Two people behaving in ways that are improper. They're given the message. One chose to accept the message, to listen to it, to hear it, that's Levi, and they, in fact, mend their ways and they go in the proper path, they veer towards holiness, and the other one, in fact, deeply entrenches their sinful ways, and that is the tribe of Shimon. Both sinned, both were rebuked, one took the admonishment, listened to it, and became the house of the greatest righteous leaders of our history, and the other one further entrenched their wicked ways. I think these two ideas are very powerful ideas. The Almighty believes in us. If you are alive today, if we are alive today, that is evidence that we still have a chance to fulfill our mission. God still believes in us. If we were lost, if we were hopeless, we wouldn't be alive. Maybe we've sinned. And you know what? None of us are perfect. But the Almighty is going to give us the opportunity to rectify our misdeeds and to correct our path. We're told in the Talmud and the Mishnah, every person, no matter how sinful they are, if they repent the day before they die, they are not considered sinners, even if they've lived a life of sin. We're also told, and this is more hinted, that every person in the world is going to be given a chance to acquire Olamabah, to acquire the afterlife in one hour, in one instant. We're going to be given the opportunity, just like the Jewish people. The spies made the sin. Okay, go retrace their steps. You're given a second chance. Everyone's given a second chance. You have Shimon and Levi. They're mavericks. They're independents. They're iconoclasts. They're rebels. And they're given quite harsh critique. They're given the opportunity to course correct. One heard the message. Levi utilize his rebuke for good. He's defying Pharaoh. He's being fearless in circumcising. 
Shimon did not absorb the message. Maybe he saw it, but he didn't hear it. He is still exhibiting his characteristics of fearlessness and defiance, but it's defiance against Moshe and fearlessness for a sin instead of a mitzvah. On the individual level, on the national level, ten national sins, give him a second chance to fix it, to rectify, and to repent. This is a very powerful lesson to us. We will have our time to fix things, but we have to seize the moment. We have to listen to the messages. We should know it's not too late, even for us, to become great. But to do it, we have to take the approach of listening, not hearing, absorbing, taking the message to heart, and changing ourselves for the better. May we be so fortunate to improve, to rectify, to fix, to repent, and to be able to return to God with our soul and say, we did our mission. Thank you for listening. This is Rabbi Yaakov Volbe coming to you from Canada. This is the Parsha Podcast. Check out my other podcast. My email address is rabbiwolbejima.com. I look forward to speaking to you. Please, God, next time.